Our scripture reading this morning comes to us from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 21, beginning in verse 33. Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. So Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. So pretty much my whole life long, my favorite day of the year has been Christmas. And maybe more specifically, I think you could say Christmas morning. I'm probably not exactly unique in that regard, but you see, my mom in particular was just notorious for buying this abundance of gifts. And so when my sisters and I, I have two older sisters, when we woke up on Christmas morning, our living room would be filled to the brim with presents. So my dad always recorded this on his camcorder. He had one of those big guys that you like throw up on your shoulder the real VHS tape inside. And so there's this one video where I'm opening a gift for my parents, and it's in this huge box, and you can tell I'm getting excited about this. And so midway through unwrapping it, I stop and I look at my mom and I go, Mom, is this going to be one of those gifts that's so expensive I'm going to cry? I think I'd seen that on America's Funniest Home Videos, where the gift's so expensive the kid just loses it and cries. So is this going to be one of those? Is it going to make me cry? And no one heard it at the time. But if you go back and watch the video, my dad whispers under his breath, Buddy, you won't be the only one crying. <laughs> so I realize it probably sounds like we were really spoiled. And maybe we're, we were, I don't know. And yet, I'll be honest, I remember my heart at that time, and I don't think it was spoiled. More so, I was just grateful. You see, I didn't demand the gifts. I wasn't picky about what I got. Not even once did I cry if I didn't get what I wanted. No, I just loved Christmas. And maybe more specifically, you could say, I loved my parents 
for being so good to us. And as an extension of that, I loved my life for how richly blessed I was. And so on Christmas Day, I always had so much gratitude for everything I had. Then I became a teenager. And everything changed. I don't know why. Maybe it was teenage hormones. Maybe I was just too cool for school. Whatever it was, the joy of a child got replaced by the angst of a teen. So I just wasn't grateful anymore. I thought everything my parents gave me wasn't cool enough, and so the relationship I had with them totally changed. And just to be clear, it was not because they changed. They were still incredibly good to us, but I changed. And a lack of gratitude makes even the best presence pointless. So in today's reading that we just had, Jesus tells us this parable, and it's about a master of a house who plants a vineyard. And then what the master does is he creates all the conditions necessary for the vineyard to be fruitful. So for instance, he puts a wall around it in order to protect it from harm. He digs out a wine press so that people can turn grapes into wine. And then finally he builds a watchtower right in the midst of it. And that's so they can look out and see everything that's coming. And so just to pause there, what is that about? If we go through it one by one, the first thing is the master is the Lord. It's God. And so what this parable is talking about is all the ways that God blesses his people. In fact, the whole metaphor of a vineyard is something we've been looking at the last couple weeks, and it's rooted in Isaiah 5. That's where God specifically refers to his people as his quote-unquote vineyard. And so then in relation to that, it says in Isaiah 5, what God wants out of his vineyard is for us to bear fruit to him. So in order to make that happen, God has always created conditions of fruitfulness. In particular, he's always given these incredible gifts to his people. So if I can just go through these, our passage mentions three things, and I've already kind of mentioned them already, but it's a wall to surround us, it's a wine press to make wine, and it's a watchtower to look out, all of which are highly symbolic. And so what is the wall that surrounds us, if we can start with that? When you go through the Psalms, it's a relatively common refrain that the presence of the Lord surrounds his people in the same way that the walls surround Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a huge wall built around it. And so it'll say in these Psalms, as a result of being surrounded by God's presence, no evil can come in and do harm to God's people. And so what's the wall? It's that. It's the presence of God that surrounds his people in the same way that the walls surround Jerusalem. Meaning, if you know the Lord, nothing evil can touch you, is what that is saying. Now the thing is, just to be clear, that doesn't mean nothing bad happens to you. It's not saying that, but it is saying that when bad things happen to you, they can't get inside and harm you. They cannot make a breach in the wall. And so they cannot touch your spirit. They cannot undo God's plan. All they can do is shape you to become more like Christ. And so to use the language of Romans 8, it says nothing at all of creation, no evil thing in particular, can separate us from the love of God. It just surrounds us. And so that's the wall. It's God's own presence and protection. It surrounds you. So let's go to the wine press. Throughout the Old Testament, wine is seen as a gift from God. 
And in particular, it's a very symbolic gift. It's symbolic of all the different graces that we get from God that make us glad from within. So for instance, in Psalm 104, it's talking about all the different graces that God gives to his people. And it says, God gave wine to gladden the heart of man. Or in the Baptist translation, God gave grape juice to... Just kidding. I used to be Baptist, so I think I can say that. Uh, but no, wine represents God's grace. And so whereas the wall is God's presence and protection around you, the wine press, press is God's grace and gladness within you. The wall gives you courage. The wine press gives you joy. And so then finally there's a watchtower. And you see, typically if you had a vineyard, you would build a watchtower so that you could look out and be able to see what was coming. In particular, you could see if there was something dangerous on the horizon. That was important. But more generally, it was just to see the overall lay of the land. And so throughout the Old Testament, a watchtower becomes symbolic of the vision, or you could even say the perspective that God gives to his people. In other words, one of God's gifts is to open our eyes. To what, you might ask? And I would say to spiritual things to the truth about the world, to the tragic nature of sin, to the goodness of his grace. So God opens our eyes to all these things. And when he does that, it is like he has put us in a watchtower. In fact, the prophets in the Old Testament are often referred to as watchmen sitting in a watchtower. And if you think about the prophets, they're always trying to open the people's eyes to the way God sees things. And so that's the watchtower. It's God giving us sight so we can see things from his perspective. So if we take all three together in the parable, Jesus is essentially saying, look at all the gifts your God has given you. He has given you the protection of his presence around you. He's given you the gladness of his grace within you. He's given you open eyes and the right perspective on the world. These are incredible gifts. And you see, the reason God gives you these gifts What's the reason? It says in the parable, it's so that we will bear fruit to God. Now here's the thing, maybe you're thinking, and this is what I was thinking when I wrote this, but it's like, wait a second. You mean to say God gives us gifts because he wants something back? Who does that? I mean, think about yourself. Do you give a gift to someone and demand to get something back? I don't know, maybe you do, but that seems kind of weird kind of tit for tat. And so the Bible says two things in response. First of all, yes. When God gives you and me these gifts, he does want something in return. And yet second of all, no. It is not tit for tat. Here's why. It's because what God wants in return isn't some sort of gift that we then give to him. In fact, just to pause there, Jesus is originally telling this parable to the chief priests and Pharisees. And one thing about the chief priests and Pharisees is they were giving all sorts of gifts to God, you could say. In fact, they were dedicating themselves to living a life of religiosity and sacrifice and all these things that looked like these major gifts to God. And yet Jesus is essentially telling them with this parable yeah, but that's not fruit. You see, because in the Bible, fruit is things like love for God, which the Pharisees didn't have, and joy 
in your life, which they didn't have that either. And peace and patience and kindness and all these beautiful dispositions of heart, none of which the Pharisees had. Primarily because they lacked one major thing. They lacked gratitude. See, what God really wants when he gives us these gifts is our gratitude in return. And he doesn't want our gratitude because he's egotistical and needs us to praise him, but rather because he is relational and wants us to know him. And so like a father on Christmas, he gives us some really good gifts. The goal of which is like a kid on Christmas, we would be grateful that we would love the Lord for being so good to us, that we would love our life for how richly he has blessed us, that we would bear the fruit of gratitude, not because we're trying really hard to bear fruit because it's the right thing to do, but rather because we have rooted rooted our heart in a father who is good. That's the fruit God wants. And yet, at least in the parable, that's precisely what the people won't produce. And so the question you have to ask is why, right? How come though, even though God is so good to us, sometimes it doesn't elicit anything in response? And the answer, I would say, is we have turned into teenagers. Which is just an illustration, by the way. So no offense if you're a teenager watching this. Uh, But what I mean by that is it's really easy to start taking the gifts of God for granted. Now maybe at a certain point, especially early on in our faith, we didn't do that. His gifts were new, they were wonderful, they were life-changing, and yet over time our relationship with God can turn into just a religion about God. Which is exactly what happened with the chief priests and the Pharisees. And so what the master does, which is God, so what God does is he sends servant after servant after servant to get fruit. Meaning God sends prophet after prophet, that would be the Old Testament, preacher after preacher, that would be now, to remind his people of his gifts and to call his people to gratitude. And yet like a seed landing on hard soil, it almost never takes root. And so what eventually happens is God sends his son which is Jesus, and now Jesus is kind of talking about himself in the parable, which is strange. Uh, But in the parable, it says the whole thought process of God, I find this fascinating. His whole thought process is that sending his son will get him the fruit that he wants. Seems to make sense. What it's saying is in order to facilitate gratitude, God's going to give us the greatest gift possible. He's going to show us the greatest grace imaginable. He's going to reveal to us his own heart in the person and work of Jesus. And so maybe, just maybe, we will know the love that he has for us. And in response, we'll love him back. That's the thought. And yet, what do the people do? They get together and they say, let's kill him which is just telling us their heart is so hard not even the greatest grace can soften it. And so what do you do at that point? What does God do with you and me when we become that closed off to him? 
This will seem random. Most of my, most of my illustrations seem kind of random. Uh, but in my last year of college, a bunch of my friends and I rented a house out in Calabasas. We were students at Pepperdine, uh, but there was not a lot of housing in Malibu that's even relatively affordable. So what a lot of students do at Pepperdine is they live in Calabasas, and then you just take Las Virginas Canyon Road through the canyon. It's about 15 minutes. And so our senior year, right before our senior year, we found a house that we really wanted. It was quite nice, but the thing is, most landlords in a place like Calabasas aren't exactly thrilled to rent to college students. And so what we did when we applied is we played up the fact that we were going to a Christian school. You know, play that to our favor. So we presented ourselves as good kids. We were going to be respectful. We were going to take good care of the place, etc. And so after talking to the landlord, making our case, he gave us a nine-month lease. And then on top of that, I can add, he was really good to us. He actually gave us some of his furniture to use. He gave us a reduced rate because we were college students. Who does that? And then he even did all the landscaping himself. He would come every single week, free of charge, just to cut the grass and trim the hedges. And so let me ask you, how do you think we were as tenants? So one thing we never mentioned to this landlord, but the six of us who rented the place, we were not just friends. We were also fraternity brothers. And since Pepperdine doesn't have any Greek housing on campus, our million-dollar pad in Calabasas became the unofficial Sigma Chi fraternity house of Pepperdine University. Which Maybe that sounds harmless to you, but if you have ever lived in a fraternity house, let me just say, we destroyed it. We almost never took out the trash, so the trash cans in the garage were spilling over. You literally could not walk in the garage. We never did our dishes, so we had a sink full of rotting food. We almost always had a bug problem for obvious reasons. And on top of that, almost every week, we had the police at our front door due to noise complaints from the neighbors. Turns out parties at 3 a.m. on a Wednesday night are frowned upon by almost all residents of million-dollar homes. And so five months into a nine-month lease, we got evicted. And two things happened. One is we had to move into a pretty crummy apartment to finish out the semester. Imagine six guys in a two-bedroom apartment. And number two, I think we all wished we had just been a little more grateful. So in the parable, when the people refuse to bear fruit, Our question is, what do you do at that point? And in the parable, the master just evicts them. And what that is saying to us is when we refuse to be grateful, God eventually just withdraws from us. He takes away his gifts. So remember, the protective presence that surrounds us, that's the wall. The gladness of his grace within us, that's the wine press. The open eyes, the right perspective, that's the watchtower. We lose it. And so even if we still call ourselves Christian, it is Christian in name only. That's what it means to get evicted from the vineyard. And yet here's the thing about this. God's hope in doing that is twofold. So two things. One is we move into a crummy place. Not literally, but metaphorically. Uh, So we enter into a state of spirit that is not 
good. And yet the hope of that is number two, we begin wishing we had just been a little more grateful. And you see, the thing is, unlike my college landlord who evicted us with no chance for a return, which I get it, it makes sense, the Lord of the vineyard evicts us in the hope of getting us back. Meaning he makes us enter into a place without his presence in the hope that we would repent and come back to his presence. And this time, the way it'll be different is we will not take his gifts for granted anymore. And so for any one of us who's lost our sense of gratitude, what God will do, even as he withdraws his gifts from us, he'll pour out his gifts on others. That's what he does in the parable. And it says the reason he does that is because he wants us to see the love other people have for him. He wants us to see how grateful other people are so that we can be reminded of how good he is. And so maybe, just maybe, when we see that, the soil of our heart will soften. And we'll go back to the vineyard of God's grace and start bearing the fruit of a grateful life. The deep truth of this passage is we have a Father who loves to give good gifts. And so why live with teenage angst when in reality you are a child of God? Let's pray as our worship team comes forward. Uh, Father God, you are so good to us. God, you surround us, you fill us, you open our eyes, you give us grace. And yet if we're being honest, we still struggle to be grateful. And so a lot of us read about this vineyard that doesn't bear fruit, and we know that that is us, that that's our own tendency. And so, God, we just pray this morning that you would change that. That you would soften whatever is hard in our hearts, that you would sow seeds of grace in us. And ultimately, that you would make us more fruitful than we have ever been. Help us, O oh Lord, to rest and to rejoice in your kindness. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.